Ryan, I said that line a couple times thinking I was going to remember it, and I still didn't. It said, the truth, let the truth, what? <laughs> this is unscripted, by the way, okay? This is not, not planned. Uh, which one? The, the truth and... Um, there you go. Thank you, Erica. Uh, that's why the Lord gave her twice the brain, because he knew how little I lacked. Let the truth prevail over unbelief. And just an amazing testimony of George. Thank you for sharing. Just to see that in practice, truth prevailing over unbelief. And so uh, it's been a good morning already uh, to hear from George and how the Lord's worked in that, in him, uh, and through Adam, and through baptism this morning, and uh, celebrating uh, with George uh, Rogers this morning. And we'll uh, we'll talk even more about, about that baptism a little later on. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of... There we go. I was looking for someone to say Daniel. We've been in Daniel for 32 weeks. Uh, this morning we are going to be in Acts chapter 2. So turn me to the book of Acts. If you do not have a Bible, there is one likely in front of you or close to you that you are welcome uh, to use, have, and keep, or distribute. Um, but this morning we are starting uh, approximately a seven-week little series. We finished the book of Daniel. Uh, I think we've already said it once or twice. We'll be starting the book of Colossians, I believe, in October. And so uh, we are a church that commits to systematic exposition uh, of God's Word, uh, book by book, verse by verse. And we will not uh, stop that, but oftentimes in between books, we will do something a little bit different uh, and do for, uh, for several reasons. One of those is the conference is coming up September 17th, right? Uh, right here at North Hills. We encourage uh, everyone to be a part of that. It's not just for folks outside the church, like pastors, elders, uh, and people who are uh, connected to ministry, but especially to the body of North Hills, we invite and encourage you to be a part of that. So if you've not signed up for that and you're able to be, we encourage you to, uh, to do so. If you do not know how to get signed up, see Evan. He will uh, smile really big and connect you to uh, how to get connected and signed up at the uh, conference. Uh, but this morning, we're starting a, a little series called Marks of a Healthy Church. Now, uh, if you've been with us for long, you are uh, probably aware of what is a healthy church and nine marks of a healthy church. And so this is definitely a play on that as, um, uh, as we start kind of re-looking at these marks of a healthy church. Now, there are many marks of a healthy church. Uh, just as if you were to assess your own health, there are so many metrics by which you can determine if you are healthy or not. Uh, so we're not looking at all the metrics of what make a healthy church, but we are going to look at specifically seven of them in the coming weeks. In this series, we're going to call Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, these marks, if you would like to write them down to know what's coming, they are this. This morning, we're going to begin with ecclesiology, the study uh, of the church and what is the church, the purpose of the church. Then we're going to look next week at deacons and then elders and then our four marks that we talk about here often are gathering, growing, giving, and going. And so that's kind of the outline for the next uh, seven weeks. Ecclesiology, deacons, elders, gathering, growing, giving, and going. But this morning we are going to begin with ecclesiology. Now someone asked this, uh, this week, John, do you think the majority of our people know what the word ecclesiology is? And my response was, I hope so, because we say the word ecclesiology so often, and it's such an important word. And so I'm going to just ask you in an uncharacteristic fashion, ecclesiology is a study of the church. I'll say that was 80% of you, uh, pastorally speaking. 
So what is ecclesiology? Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Uh, ecclesia is the word at the root word of ecclesiology. So the study of the ecclesia, uh, the called out ones, those set apart. Ecclesia, it's a Greek word. Uh, and called to be different, God's people, believers, the church, uh, and even not just the called out ones, uh, not only does it refer to being called out, but being brought together. And so this idea of ecclesia, as we start this morning, this idea of the called out ones who are called to be gathered together. Uh, the word used in the, 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 Greek, the Greek word there means to be summoned. And so to be summoned, to be called out, to be set apart, and to be gathered together. This is ecclesiology or ecclesia that we talk about often. Uh, so at, a, at oftentimes we see in the New Testament, not only does it, is it translated church, but oftentimes it's translated uh, assembly or congregation. In other words, that we'll likely uh, point to this morning. And so uh, ecclesia points to a called out assembly of God's people. Now, there are a few times and instances in Scripture where ecclesia is not just a, uh, a, 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 excuse me, a reference to God's people and to the church, but it is a reference even to just a general assembly. But probably 90%, there's only a couple of occasions in the New Testament specifically where it does not point to the church, either the universal church or the local church, which it most often refers to. As it points to the called out people of God, as we will most uh, often say this morning, the church. But interesting, the church is not where the called out ones began. Sometimes we think about the church, we think about uh, the, uh, the ecclesia, we think about uh, the, the, the called out people of God, and we go to Acts chapter 2, which we're going to land on this morning for a while. But this is not where the people of God begin. And someone said, yeah, the people of God began with Israel. It even begins more than that. The called out ones, I would even say, begins with Adam himself and humanity. Because God called out humanity, mankind, man and woman, to be something different, to be image bearers of God. I won't turn there, but if you want to write down Ecclesiastes, uh, which is an appropriate word, right, as we talk about uh, ecclesiology, Ecclesiastes 3.11, a very interesting verse. It says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. God has made everything. He's made all creation. All of God's creation is beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into the heart of man, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so we see this picture briefly of God has created everything beautiful, but yet he has created mankind different. So even humanity itself was was designed to be God's called out creation. We know the story of Genesis, we know the story of Genesis 3, we know that sin enters into the world and it fractures that image. And sin enters into the world and humanity is no longer set apart to be God's people. Uh, They become sinful, wicked people and it says sin covers the whole earth. And so then God calls out another individual. He calls out a guy named Abraham, right? And we just see in Genesis, we walked through Genesis years ago, just all of a sudden, boom, says God calls Abraham from his father, Terah. And just out of nowhere, it seems, but God obviously has a plan since the foundations of the world. But he calls out Abraham, who will have Isaac, who will have Jacob, who will be called Israel. And God's people, God's called out people, who are called to keep the law and to walk with the Lord. 
And that becomes God, God's called out people. And even oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see Israel, God's people referred to as the called out ones. But yet we know that doesn't last. We know that Abraham and his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel become sinful people and turn away from the Lord. But yet God calls them his gathered people. If you want to jot down Deuteronomy 4.10, Deuteronomy says this, How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me. And there's the Hebrew word uh, that if you go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the word uh, ekklesia. Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children to do so. So this picture of the called out people of God who are the people of Israel and he calls the, them to teach their children. And we know that within that people of God, as we often talk about the remnant, those who truly do look to the Lord for their salvation. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus uses the word church all the time in his ministry. Quite the opposite. He actually uses it twice in the Gospels. But he comes to bring great clarity to who the called out ones are, to bring great clarity to who the people of God are. All of those who call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Jesus comes to make it very clear that without him, apart from him, there is no life, there is no eternity, there is no salvation. And so Jesus comes to proclaim that all those who call upon him will be saved. He, he paints his picture for us clear that we are the sheep, his sheep, and he is the great shepherd. Matthew 18, 17, one of the two, one of the two uses of uh, the church in Jesus' ministry. And that uh, points to church discipline, which we talk about often in the marks of a healthy church. But Matthew 16, 18, I love how Jesus only uses it twice. And one of those is this right here. He's talking to Peter and he says, upon this rock, not Peter, not Peter himself. He's not the first pope, but Peter upon his testimony, upon his testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord. Upon this testimony, he said, I shall what? I shall build my church. I shall summon forth those who are called out by my name. And so we see that Jesus clearly points us to those who are his. And then Paul, not just twice, but 64 times in the New Testament, uses this word, ecclesia, this word for the called out ones, this word for the church, for the assembly, for the congregation, in so many different contexts. Paul, he further develops our understanding of what the church is and who the church is and the purpose of the church. And not just Paul, but as we'll see in Acts, as we believe, at least I believe that Luke wrote the book of Acts. And so we see that, that Paul and other New Testament authors, through the Holy Spirit inspired, give us an understanding of the church. So what is ecclesiology? It is a study of the church. It is a study of the called out ones. And we could spend hours working through what it means, um, what the, the uh, ecclesia is meant by in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what it means to be called out in the gathered people of God. We could spend hours talking about the church and Israel and the church and the kingdom of God, but the church and the bride of Christ, and the church being the body of Christ, but the church being set apart as salt and light. 
And those things will come up often in our times together on Sunday morning. But however, this morning, let us narrow it down to one particular and familiar passage. And this is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And I say familiar because we have gone to Acts uh, 2, 42 through 47 many times in the history of North Hills. Uh, actually, we first preached through it uh, October of 2011. Uh, so just right at 11 years ago, uh, after we finished a little short thing through Matthew, whenever we, we planted North Hills, we spent significant time in Acts, but not enough significant time. Right, James? We kind of, the end of Acts, but we, we were pretty thorough the first few chapters. So here's this passage for us in Acts chapter 2. Let us read uh, 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, opportunity to talk about your church, your called out people lead us through this text this morning lead us to to where it will take us this morning and as we look at the church and we really see christ in his name we do pray amen so as we come to acts chapter 2 uh it, it points us some would say the acts chapter 2 verse 42 specifically if there were a purpose statement for the church for the ecclesia, for the called out ones in the New Testament, for the people of God as we see it fleshed out in the New Testament. If there were a purpose statement, many would point to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, for, cl- for great clarity on who the church is and what we are called to do. Because we need clarity, right? Because especially in 2022, the church has become so many things and so many different people. And we could sit here and bash on that all morning, right? We'd feel good about ourselves, but that's not our task this morning. But the church is not a building we know. It's not a business. It's not a brand. But it is the body of Christ. And it's the bride of Christ. And that's what we want to look to this morning. And so as we look to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves. Now, you have to ask yourselves, who are the they? They're Christians, right? They're the church people, right? Well, let's look at right before this and wish we could spend a lot of time. Acts chapter 2 is just such a beautiful uh, passage. There is so much happening in Acts chapter 2. I would, make, I would encourage you to make time this afternoon just to read Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit comes to the church, as Peter preaches this incredible sermon, and he cuts right to the heart, and he says, and Jesus Christ, who you crucified, uh, there." In verse 22 to 24, this beautiful passage. And what's, what's happening is he's preaching to thousands and thousands of people who are gathered all across the known world here at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is coming, and God is using Peter, and he's using his word to preach. And thousands of people are saved. Thousands of people are saved. Which brings us to verse 37 there. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When they heard the word preached... They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter gave an altar call. He said, Repent and believe and be baptized. For the promise is for you and for your children, all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself, calls out. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves. These people, these people who received the Holy Spirit, who were baptized, who who entered into the church, these are the ones who Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is referring to. So two things this morning. The first thing is this. The church is made of baptized believers. The church is made of baptized believers. As we seek to understand the church, one of the things we need to understand about the church, as we said, it's not just a building. It's not just a group of people. It's not an identity. It's not a brand. It's not a business. But the church is a body of baptized believers. The church is made of baptized believers. You say, why, why emphasize being baptized? Well, I think it's good to emphasize being baptized because God's Word emphasizes being baptized. You see it twice there in that passage leading up to 242. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Those who received His Word and were baptized. So baptism is a big deal. And So why is baptism a big deal? Why is it so important? Because after all, it doesn't save. And we, we heard that this morning. Baptism is not a, a way to salvation. You're not, not saved unless you're baptized. We know that baptism is not connected directly to salvation, but it is a fruit of it. Baptism, we say often here at North Hills, is an outward sign of an inward reality. Now, many of you don't know George Rogers. You've seen George, and maybe you thought the past few months, who's this guy that sits up front next to Adam all the time? Who's this dude? And now you know a little more about George. You heard his testimony. But as you saw him be baptized this morning, you saw an outward, rea- an outward expression of an inward reality that Christ has saved him. And I love what George said, and we've talked about it a week or two ago. You know, I got saved somewhere between, you know, February and July. <laughs> And sometimes, like, we want to emphasize, you've got to have a date and a time. It's going to be written in front of your Bible if you're truly saved. Now, Paul had that moment. Paul could tell you exactly the date and the time uh, when he was saved. But Peter, we walked through Peter. You know, Peter was saved somewhere between here and here. But as he looked up, he said, Jesus is the Lord and Savior. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And so as George has looked to Christ and been saved, he has been baptized. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism is a means of grace. Go with me to Romans real quick. Chapter 6. I just love this passage and it's a good reminder for us this morning. But Romans 6, chapter, three, uh, ch- chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and a death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He's not giving the church baptism just for George. This morning, as George has been baptized, it's a means of grace for all of God's people. We are reminded of what it means and what it points us to, the picture of it. 
It reminds us of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of all of us who look to Christ in faith and repentance. And baptism is a command given in Scripture. Jesus commands in Matthew 28, 19, when he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. The church is made of baptized believers. And so we can talk about the universal church, that all of those who have received Christ and have looked to Him in faith and repentance, who have a new heart, and the old man is dead, the new man is raised up, constitutes the church of the Lord. And that's not just all those today, but all those in history past. All of those who have looked to Christ in faith and repentance are part of God's church. So the church is made of baptized believers. And number two, the church is made of devoted disciples. The church is made of devoted disciples. And they, these baptized believers, devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the church is made of not only baptized believers, it's made of devoted disciples. Now let's talk about disciples for a quick minute. Sometimes we think of disciples as the special forces of Christians. We think of their advanced believers, right? Okay, George is a believer. You know, he, got, you know, he was baptized and you know, he, he's, he's come to know the Lord. Well, give him a few years, he'll be a disciple. Give him a couple more years, Adam, and he'll be a disciple of Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus when Christ invaded his life and saved him from himself. And so a disciple is not an advanced Christian. Disciples are not better believers Disciples are followers of Jesus. I even like the term disciples better than believers in a, in a way because sometimes we can think of believers, if you believed in Jesus in this moment of time, then you are forever saved. It says even the devils believe, right? So there's a misunderstanding of what belief looks like at times, especially in the church today. But disciples is this picture of regularly learning and growing and walking with Christ. So not only is George a disciple this morning, all of those in this room who are called by the name of Jesus are disciples. And the church is made of devoted disciples. The devoted, these disciples devoted themselves to these four things. To the apostles' teaching, it says. To the apostles' teaching. He said, well, good. We don't have apostles anymore, so we don't have to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're not around to teach us. By God's grace, they are around every day to teach us they're around every moment of our life to teach us the apostles teaching is captured here in god's word and so the, the disciples devoted themselves to god's word these new believers devoted themselves to god's word all of those who were who are making up this this church that was forming and about to start growing through the known world they devoted themselves to god's word and what did they have at the time they had the old testament complete and they also have the New Testament as it was being written, as it was being inspired. They had much of what we have today. Some of it was being written. Some of it was being fleshed out and being inspired and put together. They had the Bible. They were committed to God's Word. The spiritual sustenance of the believer comes from God's Word 
period. Now, there are things that may help. There are devotional books and there are Bible studies and there are great things, but the true sustenance, the, the nourishment of the believer is found in God's Word. The church should be unashamedly about God's Word. If there is a church that is not about God's Word, it's not really a church. It's a social club that feels good about themselves. So may the church be unashamedly committed about, to God's Word. We should preach God's Word. We should sing God's Word. We should pray God's Word. We should lift up high in every way we can God's Word. Because God's Word is ultimately Christ, as we see in John. Excuse me, John chapter 1. The disciples devoted themselves to God's Word, to the Bible, to the apostles' teaching. So they also devoted themselves to fellowship. So the, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Okay, now we know these were the original Baptists, right? They were committed to a fellowship. Might as well say they were committed to potluck dinner in 60 AD. This is far more than good Baptist fellowship, right? They needed one another. They didn't even know how much they needed each other as they were saved and they were surrendering their life to Christ and the old man was dying and then the new man was being raised up. They didn't know about the persecution they would endure as God's people in the days, months, and years ahead. They needed one another, not just for physical needs, and we see that fleshed out here in uh, verses 43 through 46. They shared all things, had all things in common, this beautiful picture of God's people taking care of one another. We don't have that opportunity as much as it seems like they had in Acts in the New Testament church or even parts of the world today. But yes, we should take care of one another in whatever ways God allows us to. But this was not just for physical needs, but they needed encouragement. They needed community. They needed to be a part of God's gathered, collected, called out, summoned people. When they were saved, they were not just saved. And Christ is enough, right? Christ is enough. But by His grace, He doesn't just give us just Himself. He gives us all of those who look to Him and trust Him. And they devoted themselves to fellowship. Not just were connected when it was convenient. Not just showed up whenever it was comfortable. But they devoted themselves. This picture of devotion. This, this picture of being so intentional and regular and consistent and craved. I think crave is a good word. They craved this fellowship. They craved God's word because they knew they needed each other. So one of these four commitments they made was not just to the Bible, but was to fellowship. The church should not just be one of, one of your social gatherings not just one of your group of friends, right? Sometimes we're great at compartmentalizing. Here's, here's my work friends. Here's my church friends. Here's my CrossFit friends. Here's my whatever friends, right? But we should be so connected to the people of God that it affects every avenue of our life. Our lives should be rooted in the relationships of our local church. I'm going to say it again. Our lives should be rooted in the relationships of our local church. They should mean more to us than any other relationship we have. And I don't just say that because it's a good sermon point. I don't just say it because I'm a preacher. I mean that. And I live that out. 
the most significant relationships I have in my life. And I'm an extrovert. I've got lots of relationships. I love people. And before I became a contractor, people loved me. (laughs) But the most important relationships I have in my life are right here in this church. Can I pick on you for a second? Is that okay? My wife hates Louisiana, okay? She wants to move anywhere north of Montana or wherever. I don't know, some, somewhere it's cold. And you can ask her if I'm making this up. I said, okay, honey, we'll move. But you've got to have at least 10 families from the church. It don't matter which 10. Just pick any 10. Then we'll move, okay? Our lives should be rooted in the relationships of our local church. These disciples committed themselves to the Bible, to fellowship, and they committed themselves to communion, to the breaking of the bread. That's what this is a reference to, was to communion. Communion is also, as we said of baptism, it is a means of grace given to the church. And I think, it was, was it last year we did means of grace? A couple of years ago, it all runs together. Sometime about this time of year, in the past recent years, we, we spent some time on the means of grace and what these means of grace are. Communion is a means of grace. Communion is the Passover meal for the new covenant. The Passover meal for the, the people of the old, old covenant is for the people of God was to remember how He rescued them out of Egypt, was to rejoice and that He still rescues them and to reflect on the Deliverer who was to come. And so the Passover meal was a huge thing in the people of God. And communion became this equally important meal in the new covenant for those of us who are in Christ. It is to celebrate the Christ who was to come and for us and as we take communion, the Christ who has come, the Christ that we know, the Christ that we read about, the Christ that indwells in us, the Christ who has saved us. And for the sake of time, I'll just list these real quick. Communion for believers today, it leads us to remember, it leads us to repentance, it leads us to restoration within this body of believers because things are not always perfect. And it leads us to rejoice, to celebrate at this communion table. And it's one of the, the beautiful things that we have changed in North Hills in recent years. Coming out of COVID, if you remember, we were not celebrating communion every week before COVID. And we were disconnected, right? And we felt that. So we came back and we committed, we devoted to regular weekly receiving and partaking in communion. Because it does so much for the body of Christ. So we should be devoted, not to it as a, just a checkbox, hey, I did communion, but to joyfully gather around the Lord's table each and every Sunday. And you can't do this streaming. You can't do it when you're not here. So when you're gathered in person, we get to partake in the Lord's Supper. So they committed to the Bible, to fellowship, to communion, and finally, they devoted themselves to prayer, it says, and the prayers So much could and should be said about our need of prayer. As God's people, we are to be people of prayer. (laughs) I had a guy tell me this week, prayer came up in conversation. and He literally said, yes, I pray on Sunday at church. My heart just kind of like, I wasn't ready for that comment. (laughs) If you pray at church, you should pray on church on Sunday, right? No, we're a church of prayer. 
But if your prayers are connected just to the gathering of God's people in a church, then we're missing the heart of prayer. We're missing the gift of prayer. We're missing the means of grace that prayer is. We're missing the supernatural work that prayer is. That God has allowed us to abide in Him through the work of prayer. The disciples' devotion to prayer was not to gain goods or glory, but was to grow in the Lord. To grow in their, their trust and love and relationship with the Lord. To abide in Him as Jesus says. And we talk about this often. The, the primary purpose of prayer is not to change God, but it is for us to be changed. If we're going to the Lord with this list and with this, this desire for an outcome and for Him to change, or to change something, to give us something, that He does do that. Absolutely, He gives. He loves giving good gifts as a good Father does. But the primary purpose of prayer is to change our hearts. is to align our hearts and our minds to His will. As Jesus prayed, Your will be done. We ought to be a called out, gathered people of prayer. Because prayer demonstrates our reliance on Jesus. And especially in the context of the church here, when they devoted themselves these were collective things. They devoted themselves collectively to the apostles' teaching, collectively to fellowship, collectively to the breaking of bread, and collectively to praying for one another and with one another. Prayer should be a regular, active part of our life. As Paul says, we should pray without ceasing. It should be intertwined into our life, into every component of it. Again, there's much more to say about prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. So as we look at these, these four things that these disciples devoted to, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer, and we look at our local context here at North Hills, we see an emphasis on two of these on Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, we will always have an emphasis of God's Word and an emphasis on communion. Of course, we're going to have an emphasis on prayer. We're going to have an emphasis on gathering together and fellowshipping. But on Sunday mornings, whenever we truly emphasize the teaching of God's Word and receiving communion as God's people, in the community groups, which we're so excited are starting back, and they're a part of the lifeblood of our church, we're going to see an emphasis on fellowship and prayer. That we get to pray for one another. We get to know what's going on in each other's lives. We get to share our lives with one another. We get to be open and vulnerable and honest and transparent. Whoa, sign me out. <laughs> it's not for me. But if we are the gathered people of God, we desire that. An emphasis on fellowship, being together as the people of God. So if you are visiting with us or you've been with us for a while and you're not connected to a community group, it's not just for members of North Hills. It's for all who would want to come and experience what true life looks like when you are in a healthy body of believers. It is clear how the Lord used these believers' devotion, these disciples' devotion to these four things in a very special way. A lot of incredible things happen. We'll just read the, the last part again. So what happens when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to breaking the bread and the prayers? All came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And we even see a picture of that even today at North Hills and how we gather uh, in, together on Sunday mornings here and we uh, gather together in homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And what does the Lord do? How does church growth come about? It comes about with good branding and good campaigns and a great product. No, the Lord added, it says, to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And so as the church is the church, as the church gathers in a healthy way and is devoted to being a healthy biblical church, then the Lord will add and grow. And he sees fit. And we are committed here to, to true, meaningful growth at North Hills. It's not about numbers. It's about how, how are people looking to the Lord more today and trusting Him more today than they did six months ago, six years ago, or for you uh, old North Hills folks, 11 years ago. How has God moved in your life and grown you? How have you looked to Him and trusted Him more? what he's doing here in this local body of believers one of my greatest joys in my life is to belong to this congregation to share my life and to participate in the lives of you north hills and as we talk about the church as we think about ecclesiology it's not just an academic study but it is to look at the people the gathered called out people of god the church is a supernatural work of jesus christ Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And Lord, we know there is so much more to the church. But Lord, I pray that this morning that you have reminded us a little bit of, of what this gathering means and how important it is to your kingdom and how important it is to each and every one of us. And so, Lord, as we have a chance to, to sing together, Lord, as we have a chance to, to gather around the communion table together, as we have a chance to give together, Lord, and as we leave this place, may it not be a place that we just leave and don't think about till next Sunday. May we yearn to come back. May we yearn for community groups to start. May we look for ways to connect with one another throughout the week, to love one another and serve one another, rejoice with one another. And Lord, in these next few moments, would you help us respond in faith to your word. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.